Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Driving Theology. G G G G G G. Uh, this is Mike, and I'm on my way to work. Thought I would chat with you folks for a while. Uh, what's been, go been going on with you? Uh, what what questions uh, are you pondering? What theological conundrums? Uh, are tickling your neurons these days. Wow, there's so many for me, it's really quite difficult to put them all together. It seems like every every time I think I, I have something that I believe, something comes and challenges it. Uh, something legitimate challenges some of my beliefs and I have to rethink stuff again. Uh, the movie The Shack is uh, stirring things up a little bit as well. Hopefully for the good. Um, it's a, a book and a project that I've... Uh, a movie that I support. I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, things that are uh, coming out of that. For example, uh, uh, Paul Young the uh, credited author of The Shack. There were other people involved, but he's the author that is on the cover. This is his concept, I guess. Um, he, before The Shack, and after The Shack, apparently, his leanings were, were somewhat universalist. Um... But, the shack itself, they were quite careful to take out universalist themes, or to not, you know, because the other two guys involved in the shack project do not believe in absolute universalism. Uh, they believe that God has reconciled the world to him, to, to himself, but that reconciliation needs to be accepted by people. It's not something that is automatic in other words. Um, that reconciliation that Jesus needs to be accepted and yes it's free but you need to receive him. His, his salvation is free but he, he needs to be received in other words. Um, so thing uh, that has been going on with the, the Shack project and that is um, is the Shack truly a universalist book or is it not right um, some people claim that it, it is universalist because they know of, of Paul Young's other writings and of course, the other guys involved in the project are not pure universalists. And so there's some controversy there. And I listened to a podcast. Uh, I listened to The God Journey, which is the other two guys who are involved in the Shack Project, who uh, are somewhat estranged from Paul Young these days. He's He is estranged himself from the other two guys, but they're still involved in the 
publishing and the, the uh, producing of the movie and things like this. You know, but they they reject the idea that the shack is universalist because, of course, they specifically had Paul Young take out the universalist leanings. But people see what they want to see. And if you believe that before you read the shack that it is universalist in nature, you're probably going to see what you want to see. Uh, that's just how we are, you know, as people, we we kind of see what we're looking for, we kind of find what we're looking for, oftentimes. Uh, so, anyway, uh, you know, we all have a hermeneutic or a lens by which we uh, perceive or, or translate information, whether it's books or movies or whatever, um, and none of us is without that completely. I think knowing that you have that, hopefully you can read uh, or see things a little bit more uh, openly and let them be what they are instead of what you assume they are. Um, yeah, so I kind of wanted to talk about universalism because I find myself uh, being pulled more and more that direction. Um, and so let me just uh, let me just define universalism for you, uh, and not not going to claim that it's the right definition, but it's the definition that I understand anyway. So universalism is the uh, doctrine that every person on the planet will be saved, that every person on the planet will live with the Lord forever, eventually that all people uh, will be saved, past, present, future. And some of the scriptures used by universalists are, for example, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And the idea that you bow your knee and confess means that you understand who Jesus is. And, and bowing, here again, is... is uh, not necessarily a physical bowing, though it could be. Uh, it is a an act of submission, uh, submitting oneself to uh, an authority, if you will. Um, sorry, I've still got some allergies I'm dealing with, so I'm kind of looking for some tissue, but I'm not sure I have any with me, which could be bad. Oh, I got a few. Okay, and I'm good. So, that's universalism. And the idea is that Jesus is coming to reconcile heaven and earth uh, to each other and, and to himself. And the idea is that all things will be made new uh, and that everybody will be saved, right? That's universal, universalism. And, and that goes from, you know, of course, innocent children who were killed too young, whether in abortion or or what have you, uh, all the way down to somebody like Stalin and Hitler, Pol Pot, uh, and you know serial killers and, and these kinds of people. 
the evilest people you can imagine, that everybody eventually will be saved. And that is universalism. Now on a side note, it's kind of interesting that the the, the word Catholic, right? Or I, I believe it's Catholicum. Catholicum in uh, or Catholicum, I can't remember. Anyway, it means universal, which is interesting, but I don't, I don't believe Catholics are universalists in general. But they believe in the the universal church, the one church idea, that the church is one. Um, sorry. Maybe the first nose blow on <laughs> driving podcast. Um, anyway, that's universalism. So, here's my conundrum. I hope that universalism is true. That would, for universalism to be true to me, would just bolster the idea that God is good, that he's so good, that he will eventually win everyone's heart to himself. In this world or the next. And that is a God of love to me. That is a God of love. Now, exactly how he does that and what it what it takes and what it might take, you kind of get into some purgatorial uh, ideas, you know? Um, some, uh, you know, doctrine of, of purgatory where where God uses uh, the world between this one and the next to prepare people to serve him or, or to, to, to live with him forever. Uh, that would be um, one thing. Or the other thing is God just does it. He just forgives everybody so completely uh, and that forgiveness is enough to allow everyone in. Now, there is kind of a, uni a limited universalist idea, whereas, now again, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, I've got all my theological terms or terminology uh, correct, but limited uh, universalism would be God has indeed forgiven everyone but free will does not allow God to force people into his kingdom who don't want to be there and so he provides what some people might call hell as a place for people who don't want to live with God, who don't want to accept God, that God has offered it to everybody, but those people who reject him, even knowing who he is in the afterlife, the place is provided for them, and that's what we know and, and call hell today, right? Which is interesting. 
Now the idea that, that free will, um, which is we have the right or the, the ability to choose, right? We have the uh, freedom to say yes or no to anything. Uh, is the idea of free will, and free will is usually coupled with the idea of the love of God, that God loves us so much that he would never force us to do anything that we don't want to do. Uh, that, that love, the nature of love, necessitates free will, Necessi necessitates choice. That God forcing us to do or to be something means that there can't be any love in that relationship. And if you will, there isn't any relationship because God just controls everybody like puppets. Uh, which is, you know, if, if you think about it long and hard enough, I think, that you'll come to the conclusion that, yeah, of course, there can't be any, you know, there can't be any love when force is used. And I think there's so many different ways that that plays out. Um, uh, you know, for example, let's say uh, you have you have a child and a parent, and it's the parent's birthday, and the parent forces the child to buy a gift for him or herself, right? To buy a gift for the parent. Now, normally, a gift comes out of you know love, right? I love you, therefore I want to give this to you. But when a, a, a parent forces a child to love him, you know, uh, that's not an act of love. And the child is probably not going to reciprocate love. He's just going to do what he's told because of, out of fear or whatever, you know. So if there is, you know, a consequence for not obeying, for not obeying the parent, uh, in forcing the child to love him, uh, then it's not, the, the child would not be doing anything out of love, but out of fear, out of fear of consequences, right? Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the concept that if God is love, there must be free will. And if there is free will, then we must uh, have the ability to choose whether we want to live with God forever or not, okay? Now, the traditional evangelical view has always been, well, the traditional and or the evangelical view is that it must happen in this life, that you have these 80 or so years in which to accept Jesus or not, and if you don't, you have chosen hell. You do you get to live with Jesus forever that this time on earth is the only time we have in which to live in that free will environment because after this after we die there is no time left so you've got 80 years on one side of the equation and eternity on the other so what you do in the 80 years determines how you spend eternity and that is, that is the traditional way of looking. But 
as somebody who's been involved in missions in a largely unreached country like Japan, I can tell you millions of people a year die without ever having the opportunity to accept Jesus or not. Millions. Um, or I should say a million. And that's just this country. Um, and the reason is most most people in their in their life are not really shown a true picture of Jesus being lived out by a true follower of Jesus. Usually they're just told, right? But the life of Jesus is not is often not modeled in the world, I find, by most people claiming to be Christians. There are a lot of Christians, but there are a few disciples. Um, in other words, many, many Christians, most Christians, need to be saved and brought into discipleship, and that is following Jesus. Um, following Jesus. So, uh, if, if people are not given a true picture of who Jesus is in their lifetime, if you believe in the doctrine which is put forth by most evangelicals that you have this life to do it whether you hear it or not you know somehow that was your choice uh, and you are now consigned to the flames of hell even though you never were introduced to Jesus or at least a true picture of Jesus and then on this you know, in the same breath, you say, but God is love. Well, that that's difficult to um, reconcile the two. It's difficult to reconcile a God who would consign innocent people to the flames of hell and yet save people that, you know, that wear the badge of Christian. That's that's pretty harsh. That that looks like a harsh God to me. Um, on the other hand, if you're a pure universalist and you believe that God will save everybody regardless of whether they want to be saved, then you're taking free will out of the picture, and which, which means you're taking love out of the picture, right? If you if you remove free will, then you remove love. If, if people don't have a choice to live with God or not, then, then you have taken, by taking, by removing free will, you've removed love. However, on the other hand, if you believe that God wants everyone to be saved, which I believe is a, a biblical standpoint, if you believe that God wants everyone to be saved and loves every person regardless of what they've done on earth, God doesn't hate anyone, then you might believe that God will use all of eternity and will, will use as long as it takes to bring every person, to win the affection of every person to himself. 
that's the universalism that I, I if that's universalism that's that's the one I think right now that I embrace because what that does is that that reconciles all of the the conflicting notions that we have in God into a package pardon the phrase that that makes sense you know a God who, that is so loving that he won't ever violate our free will he won't ever force us to do anything but he will use everything in his power including all of eternity to win our affection to slowly over time uh, bring people into a loving relationship with himself if that has to happen in these 80 years that we have on earth or however many uh, that just doesn't seem to speak to a God of love to me so I don't know that that is true I don't know that it is true that God will use all time to eventually win people to himself and until that time perhaps they are in a place of their own choosing that is not what we call heaven which I believe is going to be heaven earth uh, a reality that's not heaven or the earth that we know but that is the two combined God brings heaven to earth um Sorry, I was in the middle of my sentence and I kind of got lost. But <clears throat> that picture of universalism, to me, speaks of a loving God. I can say that that God, without question, is love. Doesn't mean that this time on earth is is useless or worth, worthless. God is using this time on earth. Okay, again, this is just my opinion take it for what it's worth God is using this time on earth to win some people to himself and I believe he will use eternity to continue to do the same thing a God that will never give up on us a God who will never forsake us even though we forsake him, that God is love, and that's a God I can I can believe in. Uh, I pray that that's the truth. Um, that that's a God who is love, and that's the God we see in Jesus. I believe. Um, you know, if Jesus is the image, the true image of God, uh, then we have some work to do in the Old Testament. We have a lot of work to do with the Old Testament. And if you believe that the Old Testament is the infallible Word of God, that there are no errors in it, no errors in perception, uh, 
errors in the recording of events. Um, then again, it's hard to see that that God, as recorded by the Old Testament writers, is the same God that Jesus came to show us. Those gods look completely different. How do you reconcile that? Because Jesus claimed to be God, and Jesus said that if you see me, you see God. Jesus said that he only does the things that he sees his Father doing. He doesn't do anything else. Okay? In other words, what Jesus does is what God does. Who Jesus was on earth is who God has always been. Therefore, the God in the Old Testament, there must have been some uh, something going on with the writers there. Why would they record a God of anger and wrath and even use the word hate when you can't say those things about Jesus? You can't say unequivocally that Jesus represented a God of hate, wrath, and anger. And also, why does the Old Testament contradict itself? Why is the, the theology from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end, why does the theology seem to progress? Right? For example, where in Deuteronomy it says that God, uh, God takes pleasure in punishing. God takes pleasure in punishing disobedience. Whereas I believe in Ezekiel, God says that he takes no pleasure in anyone's death. He takes no pleasure in it. So how do you reconcile the two? And I think you have to say that there is a progressive theology from the beginning of the Old Testament through the prophets culminating in Jesus. That Jesus is the true, Jesus represents the true theology. Whereas the Old Testament represented a very skewed vision of who Jesus was. Uh, and you might say that's one of the reasons Jesus had to come. He came to correct the mistaken beliefs of who God is. That he came to show exactly who God is. And what he says by his appearance as uh, God incarnate, God in the flesh, is that you're wrong about God. You're wrong about me. This is who I am. I heal the sick. I give sight to the blind. I feed the hungry. I clothe the naked. I forgive everyone. I love everyone. And that's who God is, and that's all God is. God is love. Period. End of story. God is not hate. God is not anger. God is not wrath. The Old Testament writers were writing from their limited perspective. And sometimes they ascribed what Satan was doing to God. Because Satan was out there punishing sin. God was always trying to woo his children to himself. So, 
I'm afraid most of us have believed a lie. Again, just my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. But I believe we've, we've believed a lie of who God is. And I think repenting of that and seeing God for who he is, that is Jesus, and all Jesus is and all Jesus did, and all that Jesus continues to do, is in line with a God who is love and nothing else. Um, that is how I have been able to reconcile the scriptures to God and God to Jesus. And what, at the end of the day, I get is a God who is so completely loving that it defies all reason. A God who is that loving makes no sense whatsoever. He's too good. He's too good to be true. And maybe, just maybe, this is the one time when too good to be true is the truth. And wouldn't that just make sense of a God who is love? Well, this is going to be a little bit shorter, but I think that's a good place to stop it. Um, thank you guys for listening. And, uh, man, just celebrate this, this God who is love. Celebrate that God is Jesus. And that that's all he ever needed to be. That's all he ever was.